Acts chapter 8. If you brought your copy of God's Word today, we'll continuing our expositional study through this book of the Bible. A church on mission. A church on mission. I think Acts is one of the most exciting books in all of the Bible because it records probably the most exciting days, adventurous days, risky days, fruitful days for the early Christians. And uh, we've been studying uh, so far all the way through chapter 7. Now we're in chapter 8 today. Acts chapter 8 really is a turning point in the entire book. As we're going to see, this chapter is when uh, Christianity flows out of the city where it began, which is Jerusalem, and it starts to go global. Last week we studied the sermon that Stephen preached to the Jews, that's in chapter 7. And it was that sermon that actually got him killed. But not only did the persecution affect him personally, it affected the entire church. We're going to look at the first eight verses of the book of Acts. I want to read those uh, with you right now. Verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death. Saul was approving of the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria And preach Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame. They were healed. And there was great joy in that city. I'm titling the sermon this morning, Pleasantly Surprised. Pleasantly surprised. I want to show you from our text four surprising ways that God worked in this church who was on mission. Because I think they're the same ways that God will work in our church and in your life as you're on mission to help people find and follow Jesus. Jumping right into the sermon today. Notice number one, God makes suffering serve mission. This is a surprising way that God works sometimes. He makes the suffering of Christians serve his mission for those Christians. Look at verse 1 again. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now at first this appears to be really bad news. Stephen's dead just because he preached the gospel. Now the rest of the Christians in Jerusalem are starting to be persecuted and they're scared for their lives. And you would look at that and say, man, that's terrible. That is, that is bad for the church. Well, it's not as bad as it may seem. To appreciate what's going on, you've got to remember what Jesus told his apostles in Acts chapter 1 right before he went to heaven. Remember what he told them? Look at the screen. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. 
So Jesus gave the church its mission to preach the gospel first in Jerusalem. That's what they'd been doing for seven chapters. They've been doing a phenomenal job of it. Thousands of people have been saved and baptized and added to this group of believers. But that was only the first part of the mission. Jesus also instructed the church, as we read, to preach the gospel in Judea and Samaria. Now, the surprising part about all of this is how God chose to get the gospel to Judea and Samaria. I'm not sure the Christians in Jerusalem would have ever left. I mean, they were meeting together daily. They loved each other so much. They were so dedicated to that little, not, not, not that little, that gigantic group of believers. They were so bonded together by the different sufferings they had been through and the different uh, uh, disciplines, spiritual disciplines that they had participated in up to this point. So God knew that he had to scatter them. And how did he do it? Through suffering. He caused persecution to come on the church in such a way that they had no choice but to leave. And where did they scatter? Judea and Samaria. Verse 1 says they were scattered abroad. You know that Greek word there is the same word that, that is used to describe the dispersing or sowing of seed? Think about this. Seed is scattered, but it's in accordance with the farmer's plan. In order to grow his crop, it's intentional scattering. Well, in the case of the early church, God was intentionally scattering the seed in accordance with his plan to spread the gospel to Judea and Samaria and ultimately, my friend, to liberal Kansas. What Saul and the religious leaders thought they were doing to destroy the mission of the church actually propelled the mission of the church. Have you ever tried to mow over dandelions in your yard? So many times when you mow over a dandelion, your mower actually blows the seeds all over the yard. So in in seeking to destroy them, you actually ensure their survival. That's what happened with the early church. Now, not one of these early Christians would have chosen the means of suffering to get them to places where they can share the gospel and fulfill the mission. But that's sometimes the way God gets the gospel to the lost. Now, obviously, we're not in the same context Aren't you thankful for that? (laughs) You came to church today probably without fear of reprisal at all. Aren't you thankful for that? We can sing as loud as we want in here. We can keep the lights on. We don't have to go to a basement. Like many of our missionary friends in China today. God has been so good to us. So we're not in the same exact context But we all do face suffering and setbacks in other forms that at first seem like they're derailing our plans. But in all actuality, they could be setting us up for greater effectiveness with the gospel. Have you ever thought that God might be using your demotions or your delays or your disappointments in a surprising way to make you more effective in the mission of helping people find and follow Jesus? Maybe you've, you've relocated to a new department at work or you, you, you got placed into a new position or, 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 or you had to get a new job altogether. And in your spirit, it just feels like a demotion to you. Have you ever thought that maybe God is using what feels like a setback to put you into closer contact with somebody who's lost and needs your witness? Maybe you've been assigned a customer or a client or a patient that you would never choose to deal with. Somehow you drew the short straw. Have you ever considered 
that God might be interrupting your ideal workflow to give you an opportunity to change that difficult person's life with the gospel? Maybe God's sovereignty has has allowed an illness in your life that's caused you to have to frequent the same doctor's office many times. Have you ever considered that God might be giving you, through your illness, multiple contacts with the same people so that you can build rapport with them over time and eventually talk about your faith? Yet so many times we only think of the difficulty of suffering without ever searching for the witnessing opportunities in our suffering. God doesn't scatter you on accident. God doesn't bring suffering into your life because he made a mistake. And it's through your weakness that, that others can see his strength. Your suffering might very well be today a platform for the gospel to be preached. Don't miss it. I know it'll surprise you that God works that way sometimes because in our human minds, we would never cause something bad to happen in somebody's life so something good can happen in somebody else's life. That's not how we work. That's not how we think. We want good for everybody, I would hope. But God is perfect. And God is holy. And God might sometimes let your life be less than what you want it to be in this season so he can make through your witness somebody else's life more than it is right now. Man, that's good. That's the first thing the text teaches us. God surprises us by causing our suffering to serve his mission. Let's keep studying. Look at verse 2. This might be an overlooked detail, but I think it carries some truth. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and make great lamentation over him. Basically had a funeral to honor Stephen's life. Here's the next surprising way God works. God gives honor to faithful servants. Let me explain. The persecution in Jerusalem, which caused the Christians to have to scatter, started because of the man they just buried. That's clear here. And it's clear later in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Look, Luke says, now they which were scattered are brought upon the persecution that arose because of Stephen. Now, I can imagine cautious and well-meaning believers right there, even in the church of Jerusalem. Probably said out loud to their spouse something like this. Man, Stephen's speech was utterly uncalled for. I mean, there are less inflammatory ways to defend the truth than to call the Jews stiff-necked people who always resisted the Holy Spirit. What was he thinking? I tell you what, it's always hotheads like Stephen's that get the church into trouble. Now the whole city's against us. Look at the waste of life and property and time because of Stephen. Look at the families that are being broken up because of Stephen. Look at the homes being lost and the children being taken away from all their friends because of Stephen. Now we have to live like refugees and exiles in Samaria and Judea. Why didn't Stephen think before he spoke? But that's not how the Holy Spirit told Luke to tell Stephen's story. No, Luke tells God's version of the story because in Acts 6 verse 8, Luke calls Stephen a man full of grace and power and truth. When he spoke his final words that enraged the council, God inspired Luke to say of Stephen in Acts 7.55 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a crazy man. Not picking a fight. Not antagonistic. 
Right here in Acts chapter 8 verse 2, Luke says that devout men buried him and had great lamentation over him. What's the point? God made sure that Stephen was honored, not blamed for the persecution. At least by devout men. See, worldly people, even in the church, may be worried more about earthly possessions and comfort and image. So obedience that would get somebody into trouble wouldn't be honored by them. It would be misunderstood by them, even ridiculed by them. But godly and devout people surprise the world because they think about life the same way God thinks about life. And they honor faithfulness and they honor obedience. Can I encourage you today? Be the kind of person, a devout person that honors faithful obedience to God. Not the kind of person that questions it, doubts it, and even mocks it. And to those in here who might feel like Stephen, you're being faithful to the Lord. You're being obedient to the Lord, but it's not leading to the results that you wish you could see. It's not seeming to pay off in your life right now. I want to encourage you to trust that God will always honor your faithfulness, just like he honored Stephen's. The world may may feel like the world's throwing rocks at you, but God sees you and God knows you. And God at some point will honor your obedience. How do I know? Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unrighteous. To forget your work and labor of love, which he has showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and to minister. First Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your obedience may not be literally killing you like it killed Stephen, but you may feel like it's killing you. If that's you, take heart that God sees and God cares and God keeps score and God promises to honor your faithful obedience even when those around you do just the opposite. It's the way God surprises us. He makes suffering serve mission. He he makes sure honor uh, is given to faithful servants as opposed to how the world may view them. Now look at another surprising aspect of God's work that we see in verse 3. This is implied. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed to them, uh, committed them to prison. Now, if you know anything about Saul, he was the church's biggest critic. And he was persecuted. He was the one leading this stuff. He was a wicked man. He was terrible. If Saul existed today in this state, He would be the one at the door arresting me and trying to stone me for preaching authoritatively about Jesus Christ. This was Saul. Yet turn, turn a page in your Bible or in your phone or whatever you use. Acts chapter nine, either a page turn over or a finger tap over. And look at verse one. I'm not going to get into the details of Saul's conversion because that's coming. But, but let me give you a preview. Verse one, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went went in unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of his of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying in him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I won't read the rest. 
But basically God told him what to do. He ended up being converted. And let me show you the proof of that. Look at verse 20 of chapter 9. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. That he is the son of God. Come on, it had to have been so surprising for these people. To hear that God just made a convert out of their biggest critic. He literally killed a man just now, oversaw the the, the stoning of Stephen for preaching Christ crucified. And now the very thing that he was condemning, he is now preaching. It's in his sermon. He's preaching that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And that's the third way that Christ or, or that God can surprise us. He turns our critics into converts. Boy, I love that. See, for most of us, it wouldn't be surprising if the story was like Judas's story. A seemingly good person turned bad. Because good people turn bad all the time. I say good loosely. We're, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. But, but we, 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 it's more natural, less surprising for us to see a good person turn bad. But a lot of times in our minds, it seems impossible for a certain bad person to turn good. So for somebody to view Saul in this early church and say, he's going to become our greatest ally and partner in the cause of Christ. They would be surprised by that, but that's the power God has. What's the message to us? The message is that we should look at our critics and our adversaries, not with eyes of doubt, but with eyes of faith. Believing that someday by the good grace and power of God, they could experience a turnaround as amazing and unexpected as Saul's. Let me ask you, who in your life right now would fall under the category never getting saved? Who would fall under the category never changing? Is it your spouse, your parents, a child, a sibling, a co-worker, a boss? Who in your life have you written off as somebody who will never turn their life over to the Lord? Listen, friend, if God can shock the world by turning a murderer of Christians into the greatest missionary in history, he can shock you by saving the person you never thought would get saved. Maybe Saul's conversion will inspire you today to to try inviting that difficult person to church again. Or try to reconcile that hard relationship that's been broken so you can have influence in that person's life again. Or try to pray one more time for that lost loved one that shows no interest in the gospel. God may surprise you by how he orchestrates their salvation. God makes suffering serve mission. God honors faithful servants. God turns critics into converts. And notice one more, the larger portion of the text, verse 4 through 8. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Here's the last thing today. God uses ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference. This is an amazing point to me. This is surprising. I think it's really surprising. 
Because we, we, we always put talented, gifted, um, ex, extroverts. We kind of put them on the podium and we say, those are the people God's really going to use. They have leadership abilities and they have talent and they have charisma and they have personality. And we forget that it's all throughout scripture that God uses very ordinary people. So I believe this passage, just just the remainder of this text, and I want you to follow me. I think it gives the church a really good pattern for how we, just ordinary people, can make a difference in our community. It gives us a great working definition for evangelism. I'm going to put it up there. Evangelism is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed. Now, I want to break that down and show you where that's at in our text. First, evangelism is a group of ordinary Christians. Verse 4 talks about those who were scattered abroad and went and preached the gospel. But notice who didn't scatter. Look back at the very end of verse 8. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Or verse 1, I'm sorry. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the who? All right, four of you in your Bible. Except the who? Apostles, into verse 1. So Luke makes the point that the first time the gospel left Jerusalem, the apostles weren't its carriers. Why include that detail? Well, Luke doesn't tell you what the apostles did when they stayed. So the only reason he includes that detail is to put the focus on those who left. What did they do? They carried the gospel outside of Jerusalem. Get this. The first time the gospel expanded beyond its starting point, it was carried in the mouths of ordinary Christians, not apostles. I believe this is the Holy Spirit's sign for how the Great Commission will be accomplished as normative. The church doesn't grow by the preaching of a few anointed pastors. It grows when every believer is filled with the Spirit and testifies of the gospel wherever they go. The greatest advances of the gospel in our community and in the surrounding communities is not coming from what I do up here on Sunday. It's coming from what you do when you go out there on Monday. I exist. Our pastors exist. The church exists primarily to equip you to be local missionaries. You don't pay me to be a missionary for you. No, I'm the pastor to equip the saints for ministry. So don't be mistaken. The work of the gospel is not primarily through gifted leaders and pastors and evangelists. The work of the gospel begins with ordinary people. Like Philip, not even an apostle. Notice another phrase in the definition of evangelism. It's a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed. Philip's ministry is one of intentional words and deeds. Verse 6 tells us that they both heard what he said and they saw what he did. Which, Which teaches us that a true witness involves both words and deeds. It involves words because at its essence, the gospel is news. That's what it means. It's an announcement of what Jesus has accomplished. It's interesting to know that the word gospel wasn't originally a religious word. It was a word that was used commonly in the culture to refer to an announcement. 
Like a Greek general would, would use it to announce that he'd won the battle. Right? If, if the general won a battle on behalf of Greece, he would send out the gospel. Announcing that he'd won the battle. He, he wasn't asking people to join him in the battle. He wasn't asking to train people for the battle. The gospel announcement was saying that the battle had already been fought and won. That's where the word gospel originated. So for us to speak the gospel doesn't mean to announce how people should live or or what they should emulate. At its essence, the gospel is an announcement about something that has already been done. A battle that has already been fought. And of course, when we preach the gospel, we're talking about what Jesus did on the cross and through the grave to win the victory over our sin. And the church said, Amen. So our witness of the gospel must have words. We must announce it with our mouths. That's different than the way some Christianity culture would teach you. They would say something like, just live a good life. And, and, and I, I forgot who said it, but somebody, somebody basically says, live a good life and then use words if you have to. No, that's, that's, that's not right. I don't like that. Because the gospel is news. And we are to announce news. There's a way to announce it that, that can be a little bit more palatable, I guess. There's timing discernment that goes into that. So, so there's a lot of things to think through that the wisdom of God can help us in those moments. But listen, friend, you are to speak up for the cause of Christ. You are to use your mouth, your words to announce what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. But, but our words aren't the only thing. We, we also... Uh, being a witness includes our deeds. What is that? Tangible demonstrations of the gospel. Now, Philip did this through miracles or, or signs. Now, hear me. Signs, that's an important word because a sign is always used to point to something, right? The point is never the sign. The point is what the sign is pointing to. So Jesus' miracles or the apostles' miracles or Philip's miracles, they were all signs. They weren't magic tricks that proved that these men had power. Miracles were demonstrations to point others toward God's redemptive power. For instance, Jesus would heal the sick to point to the fact that his gospel could bring spiritual healing. He brought the dead back to life to point to what God is able to do in bringing life back to a dead soul. I don't personally believe that supernatural signs like this are necessary anymore to point people to the gospel. I think we have the full revelation of God in scripture. I believe it's a sufficient signpost to bring people to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But even though we we don't need to be able to do miracles in the form of supernatural signs in order to solidify our gospel message, there are still some natural signs and demonstrations through our lives that God can use to point others to the gospel. I I see that even in Acts chapter 2. Not everything they did was a miracle, a supernatural divine gift like a miracle like Philip was doing. Some things they were doing was just ordinary daily demonstrations of their faith. Like Acts chapter 2 verse 44 through 47. And all that would believe were together and had all things common. So there was unity among these people. And they sold their possessions and goods and they parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. 
The early church found favor with people in their community. The gospel became more attractive to some in their city, not just through their sermons and words, but through what people saw in their lives. Unity and generosity and love toward each other, close-knit fellowship and prayer with one another, dedication to the apostles' teaching. And, And the same is true for us. We should speak the gospel, but our church should also demonstrate the gospel so that people can see Jesus in us. One way that we as a church do that intentionally in our community is through what we call liberal love. We've been at this for quite some time now. Liberal love is a form of outreach to our community that involves giving and serving. We've done oil changes for single ladies and widows in our town. We've given care packages to our nurses at the hospital during covid We've served teachers breakfast and wrapped their Christmas gifts. We do that every year for a new public school. We've helped stock food pantries with groceries to feed the hungry. We've given diapers and baby supplies to local pregnancy centers, just to name a few. We've done a ton of things and will continue to do that throughout this year. These are all tangible acts of love. They're not miracles. They're just, they're they're signposts that we hope will serve to, to, to point people to the love of Jesus Christ. I mean, we've even given, uh, Members, the access to what, what are called liberal love, like random act of liberal love cards. These are on the resource center in the foyer. You should grab one of these. On the back, it says, you are loved. I pray this random act of liberal love reminds you that you are loved by God and the fellowship family. It's not invasive, anything like that. All it is, is you pick, you use your own creativity. You follow the Holy Spirit's leading in your life during the week. And you carry one of these in your car. And maybe when you want to pay for the food of the person behind you in the Sonic drive-thru, you say, hey, I want to pay for that individual's dr- that individual meal. You don't even know who they are. You just want to do that. And then you tell the cashier, would you give that to them when you give them the receipt? You, you, you can do it all kinds of ways. Pay for somebody's groceries behind you. Plow somebody's snow, one of your neighbor's snow, and, and give them this. This is just a Christian's way of daily in the normal rhythms of life, showing tangible demonstrations of God's love. Listen, Christian, preaching the gospel with your mouth is not the only way to get the gospel to people. It's in word and deed. In fact, if your deeds don't match your words, your words don't matter anyway. So if you want to preach, you need to accept Jesus, but yet you don't give and serve and love like Jesus, then your gospel isn't very attractive to them. One more phrase, evangelism is a group of ordinary Christians living intentionally in a city to bring joy to it through word and deed. Now we're wrapping this up, but this is a good point. The primary joy, we can talk about all kinds of joy that the gospel brings, but I'm going to stay right here in the text. The primary joy that came as a result of these ordinary people sharing the gospel was this, the reconciliation of two races. Philip and these scattered Christians were Jews, right? The people of Samaria... Well, they were Samaritans. The Samaritans and Jews had history to say the least. I won't give you the details. You study it for yourself. But they had hatred and mistrust that existed between the two races that stretched back 1,000 years. 1,000 years. They had this detest for one another. So get this. Here's a Jew named Philip. Ordinary dude. Now he's being embraced By the Samaritans who hate Jews. When they believed and accepted Philip's gospel, there was great joy in the city. 
Here's the point. The gospel has the power to create a unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust. And from that unity comes real joy, great joy. I think this is something that we long for, but seem powerless to accomplish in our society. I I was reading one sociologist recently talking about race who said this. We know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't been able to do is make races and cultures love and embrace each other. And, And that shouldn't surprise us. Because politics and social reform have never had the power to unite people long term. But I can tell you what does. The gospel. Think about it. The gospel identifies one common problem. Sin. The gospel identifies one one savior. Jesus Christ. And the gospel creates a new humanity. One race. What some theologians would call the third race. The race that is in Christ. For instance, if you're a Latino man, say that's your first race. Let's say you live in a culture where everyone's white. That's your second race. Well, if you're saved, you're in Christ, you have a third race. The Christian race. A race you share with all of those who are in Christ, no matter what their culture is. Your Christian race doesn't erase the other races. It just outweighs them. In other words, the the third race you have in Christ outweighs the differences you have in your second race or your first race. The gospel unifies you to other races and other ethnicities and other people groups in spite of your differences. So what the Samaritans experienced when they, when they joined this third race is a unity they had never experienced before. And that unity brought a great joy that they had never experienced before because they shared with the Jew and the Jew shared with the Samaritan this common faith in Jesus. Now, now get this, the faith in Jesus that, that, that the Samaritans turned to did not turn them into Jews. Are you hearing me? They didn't, it didn't turn them into Jews. They were still Samaritans. That's how God created them. It's that their faith in Jesus outweighed the long-standing differences between them and the Jews. That's what the gospel does. It unites and brings joy to what was once broken and fragmented and even hostile for over a thousand years. And let me ask you, if the gospel could overcome their differences, don't you think it can overcome ours? Whether it's racial differences, cultural differences, political differences, economic differences, personality differences. Hear me, the gospel can overcome them all. Here's what it means for us. When we as a church take the gospel, the good news of Jesus to our community, to our friends, to our families, to our workplaces, to our schools. Watch here. We bring with the gospel the power to unite and bring joy to people's life. I'm talking about husbands and wives who were once at odds can be united and full of joy because of the gospel. Parents and children who were once hostile to each other can be united and full of joy because of the gospel. Co-workers who can't stand each other can be united and full of joy because of the gospel. Church members that have been at odds for years can be united and full of joy because of the gospel. And yes, different classes and races of people right here in our community and around the world can be united and filled with joy through the power of the gospel. You've got to believe that.
The gospel isn't just for the white man. It's not just for the brown man. It's not just for the black man. It's for all men. It's for all men. God created all of us uniquely by his sovereignty in different families, in different countries, in different languages, in in, in different races. That is God's perfect design. God did that. He didn't make a mistake when he made you the way he made you, putting you in the family that he puts you in. The gospel is for all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I don't think we understand sometimes the power of the gospel to unite. I don't think we understand the joy it can bring to a family or a marriage or a home or a workplace or else we would preach it more. It's amazing to think that an entire city experienced joy because of ordinary people showing the love of Jesus with intentional words and deeds. I'll close with this thought. If for some terrible reason Fellowship Baptist Church ceased to exist in liberal Kansas today. I would hope that our community would weep. I would hope our community would sorrow. Because of the joy that our witness and our presence brought to their lives. If a church can cease to exist right now. And there's no grief or sorrow within the community. That church has not been a good presence. We are gospel carriers entrusted to bring joy to our city and unity to our city. And I hope that through your life and our sincere but imperfect intentions of of loving people where they are will cause people to see the Jesus that we preach. And I hope for many years to come we will live and behave in such ways that we bring joy to the people that we're around. How does God surprise the church? In four encouraging ways. He makes suffering serve mission. He gives honor to faithful servants. He turns critics into converts. And he uses ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference.